Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Paul. Happy New Year. Happy Snow Day. Happy everything. We're so glad you made it here safely today to worship with us. You know, every time I preach, which thankfully isn't all that often. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, every time I preach, one of the things that really stands out to me is how thankful I am for our music team uh, and how thankful I am that uh, they don't miss a beat when I'm not up here. And even today, um, they are minus a person that was going to take a significant role in the leading of the service, and you guys would have never known if I hadn't just told you. And so I'm just so thankful for the way God has blessed us with our team and, and how it gives me the opportunity when I preach to just worry about that and not worry about anything else. So thank you guys. Y'all are amazing. Um, here we go, new and improved. When you see this, what's your immediate reaction? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of skeptical, right? I don't believe this at all. If I told you Common Ground is new and improved today, just because we decided to say it was, you probably wouldn't believe me. Um, I'm very skeptical. Sometimes it seems like just the packaging of something changes, right? They make it look different, so they want to call it new and improved. Sometimes the product has changed. One of the more famous ones that I remember is New Coke, Right? New Coke, if you're, if you're shaking your head, then you're old like me and you remember that. Uh, but New Coke was supposed to be the newest, greatest thing, right? Mess with the, uh, the formula that's been a success for however long it had been a success. Let's have a New Coke. And we all know how that went. It was, yeah, no good. Nobody liked it. Companies like to make a lot of promises about how much better the newest thing is. I don't know about you, but I think it's around September, right, when the new iPhones get introduced. And they want to tell you the 50 new features that make it worth having a new one. Well, I used to fall for that. Like iPhone 2, well, I had to have a 3, right? When I got to the next, I had to have a 4. I think now I go with like 4 or 5 years. They, they, they don't convince me anymore that I need the latest, greatest thing. But that's kind of how our society is. The new, the improved. Kind of like this ad right here, the next picture. There it is. New diamond shredders with 45 more degrees. <laughs> Do you get it? Some of y'all are looking blank and you're going to, yeah. See how the, it's turned 45 degrees on the right side? It's not funny if you have to explain it, right? <laughs> yeah. New diamond shredders. This, this is fake, obviously. Maybe not so obviously, but it does feel like something you might see at a, on a grocery store display. Right? New diamond shredders, just because they decided to turn the picture. I can imagine a lot of businesses have this kind of meeting. Go ahead for the next one, Luke. This kind of meeting, we need to address the competitive threat. Look at all the stuff they're looking at. They give it to the creative person. The creative person gives the idea back, and the idea is put new and improved on the label. Again? Right. Seems like this is all we can come up with to make people think they need the newest and latest, greatest thing. When in doubt, call it new and improved, no matter what the truth is. And you know, we, we kind of fall into this trap personally a little bit this time of year, right? We're supposed to make a resolution. We're supposed to make resolutions. What do those really amount to? Trying to make yourself in some way new and improved for the new year. You know, we, we, it's not bad to get in shape or eat right or cut back on a bad habit. There's nothing wrong with those things, but when it comes down to working hard to be a new and improved version of ourselves, what does it usually end up becoming? A disappointment. Then it leads to guilt. We don't often get the new and improved results we were hoping for. 
when we make those resolutions. Now, one thing that you can count on is when God tells you something is new and improved, it's absolutely true. You can take it to the bank. He doesn't use marketing techniques. He doesn't just turn a Trisket 45 degrees and tell you it's new and improved. When God says it's new and improved, you can count on the fact that it's new and improved. And we've seen throughout our study of Hebrews that the writer is declaring Jesus to be the new and improved way for us to relate to God. Versus the old covenant of the Old Testament, the laws and the sacrificial system, Jesus is the new, the better, the greater way. And the whole point of the book is to say that the coming of Jesus into the world puts an end to the old way of relating to God. It brings in a new, better way, where Christ himself fulfills the role of high priest. He replaces all the ceremonial rituals. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. And last Sunday, Derek looked at it in chapter 8, where we saw how the new covenant is better because it gives us a new identity, a new identity in Christ. And this week in chapter 9, we continue to see how the new covenant is better than the old, specifically in the form of how we can approach and relate to God and worship God. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and I forgot to write down the page numbers. Somebody that was in Bible drill as a kid, look it up real quick in the blue Bible. What do you got? 1107. So if you didn't bring your Bible today, you can grab the one under the seat and turn to page 1107. It's toward the back. We'll be in Hebrews 9. And we're going to dig into that and see what's new and improved because of Jesus coming uh, in this passage. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to worship and to relate to you personally. God, I pray we'd never take for granted the privilege we have of that direct access to you through your son. And may that be renewed in our minds today as we study what it means to be under the new covenant. Now, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews 9, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 7. These are probably not going to be verses that you have on a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker or that you maybe even memorized as a kid. These are going to be a little bit um, foreign to us, but it's okay. We're going to talk about them anyway. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak. In detail, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So, like I said, probably not on the back of a t shirt you have at home in a drawer. And it's real easy to hear these verses and begin to kind of tune out maybe even glaze over a little bit, because the stuff that's described there seems so strange to us. It's not a part of anything that we do. But you can make a big mistake by not understanding what this is talking about. If we don't try to understand the importance of this, we're going to lose out on some of the impact of the comparison between the old and the new. If we don't understand what we've gained by being under the new, uh, by 
seeing how the old used to operate, then we lose some of that um, impact again of being under the new. So even though the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater, we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that the old ways are irrelevant. The old helps us to interpret the new, and it sheds light and understanding for our present circumstances, for our present understanding of how we relate to God. So in verses 1 through 7, we see a description of the old period of Jewish history, the way the people of God were instructed to worship. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here real quick. God chose the tabernacle as his place for the purpose of meeting with his people. It was made up of two main rooms. It had the outer holy place where the priest entered and continually performed the divine worship. And one of the privileged responsibilities that the priest hoped they got to do at least once in their life was to light the altar of incense, which was just outside the Holy of Holies. For most priests, that was as close as they ever got to being in the presence of God, was just outside the Holy of Holies. And a lot of them didn't even get to do that because it was chosen by lot Every day, not the person lot, but like pulling names out of a hat lot, right? So it was chosen randomly every day which priest got to do the privileged thing of the altar of incense, which was the closest thing to the Holy of Holies that any of them would get to unless they were the high priest, right? The high priest had the incredible privilege of going into the Holy of Holies one day, once a year. And this was extremely uh, important to the people. It was on the Day of Atonement. It's important because it was the only time God could be met with directly, and it was by only one person, treated with extreme reverence, who on behalf of the people could offer these sacrifices for their sin. Um, It was treated with a bit of fear also, so much so that they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle in case he keeled over dead when he was in the presence of God because no one else could go in there no matter what. They would actually have to drag him out by the rope that was around his ankle. No one could go in there except for the single high priest once a year uh, on that day. And so, in other words, in this period of time, when we read this, it seems foreign, strange to us. Why do they do it this way? The uh, presence of God... Being in the presence of God was very limited. The way to God was very limited, sealed off behind the, outer, uh, behind the curtain and only accessible by the high priest. So we need to understand from that that approaching God is a very special thing. It's a privileged thing. The fact that we have, through Jesus, the opportunity to directly um, be in the presence of God and have his presence not only with us but in us is an incredible privilege. Under the old covenant, there was no free access to him. In verses 8 through 10, the writer continues kind of describing this period, but he begins begins to give us a little more interpretation of why it existed this way. So let's look at that real quick, verses 8 through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right, so why was the sacrificial system something God put in place in the Old Covenant? The writer says, this system is a symbol of the present time, and it isn't able to do anything beyond ceremonial cleansing. 
In other words, this present system, this old covenant, only deals with the outside. It's not able to cleanse the conscience. It's not able to get to the heart. It was a system designed to point to our need for a Messiah, to point to our need for a Savior, to point to our need for Jesus, to point to our need for complete forgiveness and cleansing of sin, to point to a time of change, a time of, he calls it, reformation. So, when does this present time that the writer is describing under the Old Covenant give way to the new? What's the catalyst for the Reformation? Well, we've all heard throughout Hebrews, the catalyst is the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of the plan of salvation through Christ. But let's read how he describes it in verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So the reformation of how we relate to God happened when Christ appeared and fulfilled his mission as high priest for us. It says he didn't need a man-made tabernacle. He didn't need to perform ceremonial cleansing with the blood of sacrificial animals. He entered the holy place once for all, meaning once for all forgiveness of sin for eternity through his blood. And his blood was offered without sin so that we could be cleansed of our sin, not just outwardly, but through to our entire being, our conscience, our heart. Everything about us can be cleansed. The new covenant is not based on outwardly conforming to ceremonial law, but instead on being inwardly transformed by the intent of the law, which Jesus fulfilled. I know you don't have any uh, blanks to fill in, But uh, I left you plenty of room to write stuff down and draw pictures and whatever else you might want to do. So there will be a few slides if you want to jot those down. The new covenant is not based on outwardly conforming to ceremonial law, but instead on being inwardly transformed by the intent of the law, which Jesus fulfilled. So we can draw near to God with confidence based on the perfection of Christ, not based on anything to do with us, but based on who he is and what he's done. As it says in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what we understand is the power of the blood of Jesus makes this reality possible. The truth of who Jesus is and what he's done when he gave his blood to as a sacrifice for us. It makes me think of a story I heard about a family that got into a a pretty severe accident. And they had two young sons, ages eight and six. We'll call the older one Josh and the younger one Andrew. That's not their names, but that's easier for me to remember. This didn't happen to us. I just want to be clear. Um, But they had an accident. And unfortunately, Andrew, the younger one, took the brunt of the impact in the accident. So he was uh, not doing well, and they realized that if they didn't get him a blood transfusion quickly, his chances of survival were really low. And so in this moment, they needed a perfect donor to do a direct transfusion, and the older brother was the perfect match. 
And so the family sat down and they explained to Josh what, he, what was going to happen, that he was going to get hooked up and he was going to give his blood to his brother and that it was going to save his life. Um, so Josh sat there for a minute, thought about it, and said, okay, let's do it. So they get into the room, they strap them all up, they start feeding the blood from Josh to Andrew, and it lasts however long it lasts. As it's finishing up, um, the nurse takes the needle out of Josh's arm, puts the bandage on there to, to hold the blood back, and Josh looks up and says, how long do I have? When, when am I going to die? The older brother thought by giving his blood to the younger brother, he was sacrificing his life so that his brother could live. And he did it anyway. Again, that didn't really happen to us. I want to be clear. Um, but we understand through that it, it has an impact on us. It hits you, doesn't it, when you hear a story like that. Jesus did that. Jesus willingly did shed his blood for us to the point of death so that we could be forgiven, so that we could find life. It's hard for us to understand the impact this new covenant, this truth would have on the early Jewish Christians because, again, we have the privilege of living in this new reality. They were navigating that transition and just starting to understand this history-altering event of Jesus coming, but a lot of times we take that access for granted. Uh, after the Civil War there was a, a soldier that was trying to get access to the president because he felt like he'd been cheated out of some property that was his. And he knew that if he could just see the president, Abraham Lincoln at the time, if he could just get into Abraham Lincoln's presence and plead his case that the property could be restored and everything would be okay. But continually, he was blocked from entering uh, the White House. He would get close and they would say, who are you? And say, uh, no thanks, you're not coming in. Well, one day he was sitting outside kind of just really despondent of the situation, not knowing what he could do. And a little boy came up and said, what are you doing out here? He told him the story, explained to him what he was trying to do to get in to talk to Abraham Lincoln. And the little boy took him by the hand and he said, well, come on. So they walked toward the gate and the guy's like, I don't know what's happening, but I, I mean, what else have I got to lose? They're walking up to the entrance of the White House and in, the guards, instead of stepping in front, stepped to the side, opening up so that they could enter. He's like, okay, that sounds good to me. Keeps on walking, goes right into the library where Abraham Lincoln is sitting and studying, gets the chance to be in his presence. That little boy was Tad Lincoln, Abraham's son. The son gave access to the father because of the relationship that they had. We can kind of begin to understand the privilege we have of being in the presence of of God because of the relationship of the Son, because we know Jesus, because we can have that personal relationship with him that gives us access to God. And here's the crazy thing. Under the old covenant, direct access to God was more limited than to any president at any time. But the new way of relating to God through Jesus is greater than the old way, and it's a privilege only possible because of God's Son. So I want to take a few moments to look at two aspects of this new covenant, this new reality that we're living under because of Jesus. Under the new covenant, first of all, Jesus secures our salvation. Jesus secures our salvation. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus entered the tabernacle, the meeting place with God. 
He didn't have to build it. It wasn't a tent. It was his own body. God's presence, he entered through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, obtaining eternal redemption. And he entered as our high priest. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that's final. It's for everyone. It's once for all. And the redemption it offers allows for eternal redemption. You don't have to repeat it. You don't have to wait for the special day of atonement uh, at the end of the year. You have that access to God through Jesus' death on the cross. It never ends. It never needs to be repeated. That old covenant, the sacrificial system, was not up to this task. It pointed out the need for salvation. It pointed out where we fell short. It looked forward to the fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah. The new covenant, again, is not going to be based on people having to outwardly conform to regulations. It's based on people being inwardly transformed by the Son of God. And in describing this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, instead of the law being written on stone tablets, we would have the law written on our hearts. I love that. Instead of the Ten Commandments or the the scrolls of the different rules, God's going to deal directly with us, who we are, directly in our heart. He's going to let us know what that relationship is about and how we should relate to him. Um, And we have that access to him because of his son. God says he has a new and improved way for us to relate to him. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we can be eternally redeemed, forgiven, and saved. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and allows us entry into the very presence of God because Jesus, under the new covenant, secures our salvation. The second thing under the new covenant that Jesus does, is cleanse our conscience. The writer gives us this contrast between the old and new. Again, in verses 13 and 14, I want to read it for you one last time. It says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Under the old system, there was an opportunity for this outward cleansing. The sacrificial system, though, as we've established, it was adequate for ceremonial cleansing, but not for the heart, not eternal. It had to be repeated over and over. And under this new and improved covenant, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus is able to cleanse our conscience. It goes right to the heart. Have you ever had a guilty conscience? I need y'all to explain it to me because I don't know what that feels like. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, As much as things change throughout history, some things always stay the same. Even in our modern age, we share some things with the original audience of this passage. And despite all the different cultures, philosophies that we've experimented with and walked through, one fundamental problem remains the same. We have a sin problem. We choose to reject God's ways and try to do things our own way. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those choices create in us a guilty conscience. And they make us feel unacceptable to God. We don't feel worthy to Him. We feel guilty. And guess what? Without Christ's work on the cross, that feeling is absolutely correct. We are guilty. It's true that we're not good enough to come to Him on our own. We can try to be worthy. We can try to ease our guilty conscience. It's been done a million different ways throughout history, but no matter how hard we work to cleanse our conscience, the stain remains. And what does this verse call those attempts 
to cleanse our conscience. It calls them dead works. Dead works of no value, of no help. And the writer of Hebrews, in showing us the benefits offered through the new and improved covenant, says the perfect sacrifice of Jesus can cleanse our conscience. I don't think we understand how significant that is. The only answer is the blood of Jesus. You'll never assuage your guilt by doing more volunteer hours, giving away more of your money, vowing to be a better parent or better spouse or any other New Year's resolution you might already have broken by day seven of the new year anyway, except possibly adding to your guilt for not being able to keep the resolution you thought you should have. We've got to stop trying to fix ourselves. That's why the new covenant is so much better than the old, because we can have complete forgiveness and healing because of the perfect sacrifice that Christ offered. When I say healing, I don't mean physical ailments. I mean the relationship we can have with God. It's healed to the point that he created it to be, where we can be in his presence. We can have complete forgiveness and healing of that relationship because of the perfect sacrifice that Christ offered. And therefore, because God sees us as perfect, we have access to him. Because as I say in discovery every time, uh, sin and God are like the wrong ends of a magnet trying to get together. No matter how strong you think you are, you can't do it. God can't be in the presence of sin. But he says, I will take care of that through my son so that we can then be connected like we're supposed to be in relationship with one another. Don't miss the last little bit of verse 14. I tried to say 13 and 14 at the same time. That didn't work. The last little bit of 14, the things we try to do to ease our guilt also undergo a change through the new and improved covenant. The way we live out this new and improved covenant is infused with the power of God. He takes our insufficient efforts, our dead works, and he gives them new life and purpose. He uses them for his glory. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. We're empowered to serve and glorify him, redeemed, forgiven, and saved. It's important we take a moment here, I think, to discuss the difference between guilt and conviction. There's a difference between guilt and conviction, and they're both, they're both important to understand. You've heard the phrase, weighed down by a guilty conscience. Again, I don't, I don't understand what that feels like. Thanks for laughing along with me. Uh, um, weighed down by a guilty conscience. They did a study in 2013 proving that people who feel guilty have a physical sensation of being heavier than they actually are, of having trouble moving to do everyday tasks, more so than someone who feels, uh, not, doesn't feel like they have a guilty conscience. Participants with a guilty conscience viewed those things requiring significantly more effort than those people with a clear conscience. Guilt is not just emotional. It literally does weigh you down. It eats away at important body systems and functions over time. It has a literal effect on your physical health, not to mention the many ways our mind and our personal outlook on life are affected. Guilt drives so much negative behavior. It interferes with mental function. It decreases the body's ability to fight infection and disease. It has a high correlation with mental disorders. It increases stress. It magnifies anxiety and depression. Guilt is negative. And it's a tool the enemy uses to paralyze us spiritually. The enemy uses guilt, regret, blame, and shame to plant a seed in us, telling us we're no good, we're unacceptable. We'll never find forgiveness. We'll never be really loved. Guilt is crippling. 
But the writer of Hebrews says, the work of Jesus purifies our conscience. The new covenant offers the opportunity to be free from the crippling effects of guilt if you understand and respond to God's conviction. You see, guilt comes from the enemy. It comes from a place of fear. Conviction comes from God. Conviction is meant for good. Conviction is meant to keep you on track. It leads you to change for the better. Even though it feels a lot like guilt, it's actually positive. Where guilt leaves you stuck, the conviction of God leads to freedom. It reveals an area where you're falling short. God speaks truth about that area to you and invites you to repentance. And that's the key word. The key difference is repentance, a turning. Guilt leaves you stuck where conviction leads to a change of direction and freedom. One reason guilt and conviction can be so confusing is that they start in the same place. They start with sin. They start with falling short in some way. But guilt comes when we refuse to respond to God's conviction and repent to go in a different direction. Guilt comes when we hold on to it for ourselves. Guilt comes when we think we're an exception to God's ways and we think we can do it our own way. Conviction leads to change. Guilt keeps you mired in the past. It's a state of being due to your own lack of repentance. But the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, who offered himself without blemish, is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus offers forgiveness. Conviction leads you to God and forgiveness. Guilt makes you hide and stay trapped. Guilt is the feeling you get when you ignore God and try to fix yourself. And it's difficult when you have guilt to allow anyone to speak into your life. Have you noticed this? It's like it creates a wall around you that no one can penetrate. Don't tell me anything about myself that I need to adjust. Um, It makes it really hard for someone to speak into your life. Guilt leads to more guilt. Guilt's focused on yourself, whereas conviction is focused on God. Conviction's designed to set you free. It builds you up. It leads to growth. It helps you, shapes you, enlightens you, sets you free to know and serve God as he designed Guilt is based on fear, and conviction is based on love. So the old sacrificial system was not adequate for cleansing our conscience. But the power of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the conviction of Jesus, gives us the opportunity to serve him and learn from him. And sometimes the hardest part of forgiveness is forgiving ourselves. Jesus says it's forgiven. He's done all the work if you'll repent and turn from the things where you're falling short in your life, that they're gone, they're over. Guilt is the enemy trying to hold you back. Uh, It's not from God. And remember what Paul tells us in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So is there that thing that comes up that tells you you're unworthy? Have you repented and turned from it? There is therefore now no condemnation. Allow God to speak to you through conviction. Don't let the enemy hold you back through guilt. It doesn't mean we do whatever we want and we never need correction, right? It means we receive the conviction of God as it's intended, in love to lead us to repentance, to growth, to change direction, to being more of who God designed us to be. So what has God convicted you of? Maybe you do have some guilt over some conviction that God has put in your life that you haven't responded to correctly. Where is he pointing you in a new direction? It comes down to repentance. 
It comes down to turning, agreeing with him, and turning and going in a different direction. Understand that his correction is perfect, and it's from a place of love. And the sacrifice that Jesus, uh, of Jesus affords us the privilege of living under God's conviction, forgiven without condemnation, without guilt. That's the new and improved covenant. And like I said at the beginning, when God says something is new and improved, it's for real. It's the truth. You can count on it. The new and improved way of relating to God through Jesus is better. It's greater. So how do we enter this new covenant with God? As Derek said last week, it's a unilateral covenant, right? God's done all the work. Our part in it is to accept its truthfulness by faith. Our part in it is to declare our faith that Jesus is who he said he is, the divine, perfect son of God, that he did what he said he would do. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish, the possibility of complete forgiveness and personal relationship and access to God with him as our only high priest. And we surrender to him as Lord from that moment forward, that he's in control. If that's you today, I'd love to meet with you and pray with you in the back. It's what we're about. It's why we exist. We want you to be connected to the abundant life that's only possible through an abiding relationship with Jesus. If you don't want to talk and and pray with someone, you can write on your Connect card that you want to talk or understand more about what it means to follow Jesus in the days to come, and we'll get a hold of you. But don't leave here today without saying, I need to understand what that means. I need to know what it means to truly be under the new covenant. When, When God says something's new and improved, again, it's not a marketing gimmick. Don't waste any time operating under the old covenant, trying to offer your dead works to him. They're dead. Don't spend another moment weighed down by guilt. Don't let guilt paralyze you. No more guilt. Repent and turn from your sin as God convicts you, maybe even today, and allow Christ to cleanse your conscience. And if you haven't already, say yes to his invitation to salvation today. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the power of the new covenant. God, sometimes we just flippantly say, oh yeah, that was the old way and and there's a new way and it's better. But God, it is so much better. It's such a privilege to have access to you through the forgiveness of your son. God, even today as we take communion, I, I pray that that truth would be heavy on our hearts and in the forefront of our minds. The incredible thing you did by sending your son and to have his body broken for us, to have his blood spilled for us because you said there's no, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God, we know that the perfect blood of Jesus has the power to forgive us of our sins. And I pray as we remember that through communion today that maybe it would touch us in a way it hasn't in a while. Maybe it would lead us to live differently uh, as we walk out the door today. Maybe we would be able to leave the conviction or leave the guilt that we feel by not responding to your conviction at the cross. And we would respond positively today to turning and being who you want us to be. God, may we not be afraid of your conviction, but may we welcome it as the perfect loving thing that it is, a way for us to be more of who you want us to be, a way for us to be closer to you. So God, as we respond to you today, I I just pray that we would say yes to whatever you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name I pray.
So as I mentioned in the prayer, today is a day of communion. For those of you that have professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is a way that God gave us to remember uh, what Jesus has done, to remind ourselves of the privilege we have of connecting to God directly. We have our normal three stations, one back here, one up here, and one over here. So as God leads you to respond in that way, we encourage you to do that. Also, if you're here today and you want to say yes to Jesus and you want to talk to me about that, again, I'll be right back in the back as we continue to worship and respond to God. Our heart is that you would connect to him whatever way he's leading you. Whatever conviction he's putting on your heart today, say yes to him as we continue.